Have you ever, um, have you ever seen two people that uh, at the outset, at the very beginning, seem to have almost everything in common? You know, uh, that they, they just seem to be, say the same thing, seem to, uh, oh, maybe even feel the same way, even see things the same. And, and yet, as you travel along, the further along their relationship, what started out with seeming unity turns into absolute, just they're on opposite ends of the spectrum. Have you ever seen that? You know, maybe it's in a relationship and it starts out so quick and it's like, oh yeah, man, this is great and it's a friendship and it seems like you have everything in common together. But then as you keep going along, it re- you realize you couldn't be any further apart. You see it all the time, I, I think, especially in, in marriages, right? And you start off with, oh, love each other, this is amazing. You see everything the same way, but then all of a sudden you realize and you wake up and, and you realize you're married to a stranger. You don't actually know them. They're, yeah, I mean, anybody seen this before? Is it just me? Okay, okay, you with me? All right, all right, all right. It happens in the business world all the time. You hire someone or you have a business partner and it seems like you're saying the same things. You even use the same words. But in the end, you actually meant something drastically different. And so as a result, you ended up in a world apart. I just started wrestling with this question this week. And um, it's simply this. How is it that, that two people who seem to be saying the same thing or seem to see life the same way. How in the world, when it seems like you have the same starting point, how do they end up so far apart? Yeah, you ever just wondered that? I mean, I mean, maybe it's a friendship. Maybe you've experienced it, and you and you had that friendship that it just seemed like, man, this is going to be one of those, you know, BFF, best friends for life, right? And, and yet, at the end of it, it wasn't that they weren't just your BFF. They ended up being an enemy. You ever seen that? And you're you're like so far apart. Or in a marriage, and it started off with all this in common, and then in the end, you know. What, what, do you, what was on the divorce record? Irreconcilable differences. Like, what happened? What happened years before that? You had everything in common. How is it? How is it that two people who seem to see things the same way or to be saying the same thing end up so far apart? That, that those who seem to have alignment, the further along they get, the further apart they become. I'd like to suggest the reason why is, is what I'd call a watershed moment. Uh, watershed is probably something that we studied in um, school. I recently came across this idea as I was reading a book on the plane in Haiti, and uh, he quoted extensively a guy, uh, Francis Schaeffer, noted philosopher, author, and uh, incredible Christian thinker of the 20th century. So if you've never read any of his work, highly, highly suggest it. Uh, but just to give us a little bit of background, let, let me uh, define watershed. At least let's let Webster define it for us. Webster defines a watershed as this, a time when an important change happens. Uh, second thing, a line of hills or mountains from which rivers drain. Or, or third, a ridge between two rivers. 
Uh, Francis Schaeffer writes about a watershed in this way. He says this, Not far from where we live in Switzerland is a high ridge of rock with a valley on both sides. One time I was there when there was snow on the ground along the ridge. The snow was lying there unbroken, a seeming unity. However, that unity was an illusion, for it lay along a great divide. It lay along a watershed. One portion of the snow, when it melts, would flow into one valley. The snow which lay close beside would flow into another valley when it melted. Now, now it just so happens on that particular ridge that the melting snow which flows down one side of the ridge goes down into a valley, into a small river, and then down to the Rhine River. The Rhine then flows on through Germany, and the water ends up in the cold waters of the North Sea. The water from the snow that started out so close along that watershed on the other side of the ridge, uh, when this snow melts, drops off sharply down the ridge into the Rhone Valley. This water flows into Lac Lemon, or as it's known in the English-speaking world, Lake Geneva, and then goes down below into the Rhone River, which flows through France and into the warm waters of the Mediterranean. Now he pulls it all together. The snow lies along that watershed, unbroken, as a seeming unity. But when it melts, where it ends in its destination is literally thousands, a thousand miles apart. That is a watershed. That is what a watershed is. A watershed divides. A clear line can be drawn between what seems at first to be the same or at least very close, but in reality ends in a very different situation. And so as we ask and answer this question, or at least wrestle with, how is it that two people who start off with a seemingly unity, closeness way of looking at life, I would suggest that there is this watershed moment, this line where, where this subtle difference, which seems so... It just seems like it's not that big of a deal, like, like it's, it's not something to make a fuss over. Actually leads you to drastically different destinations. And in fact, in fact, Palm Sunday, what we celebrate today is a watershed moment. Palm Sunday, or what is known as the triumphant entry of Jesus is one of those moments where, where it seems like everyone's saying the same thing, and yet they end up worlds apart. Think about this. Palm Sunday, Jesus announces in his public demonstration, we'll read about it in just a second, that he is the coming king. He's the long-awaited Messiah, and the people welcome him and celebrate him as the coming king. And yet, and yet, in just five days later, they will not call him king. They will crucify him as a criminal. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I've wrestled with that. How is it? How is it that a people who called him king on Sunday could crucify him as a criminal on Friday? How in the world do you experience that unity at the beginning that leads to this disparity at the end? Where in the world did that come from? And we're going to discover this morning 
simply this how they ended up so far apart even though they seemed like they were saying the same thing and this I believe a powerful principle for life one that we often overlook miss or dismiss it's a watershed moment if you got your Bibles would you open them up to Mark chapter 11 verse 1 we'll pick up the story here in verse 1 As they approach Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples. They're coming up from Jericho. It's about a 17-mile journey. They came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're doing this, say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. Verse 4, they went and found a colt outside the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! We just sang that song. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is showing up into town to Jerusalem. It's not his first trip, but as we know by history's sake, it will be his final trip. And as he shows up, he's got an important message that he wants to say, and he's going to demonstrate it in his actions. You know, we were just in Haiti, and uh, what I in Haiti is very rural, and it reminded me much when we read about the New Testament times. It just you could see it all in action, and and all over we saw uh, donkeys or colts everywhere, and they, this was a common part of life. Now, what you need to know in Jesus' actions here is is it's not all that strange that he would come in riding on a colt. But here, he was this prophet, he was this powerful, wonder-working, miracle-making man, and there's this expectation that that as he's coming, he could be the long-awaited Messiah, and so he does something that, that speaks so loudly and so profoundly to the people around him. He gets on and rides a donkey that's never been ridden. Now, now, kings in that day, when they'd go out to war, they, they would um, ride a valiant steed, and, and it would be a war horse. When they came in peace into a certain city, in particular their, their own home or capital, they would come on an animal of peace. Animal of peace in their day actually was a donkey or a colt. It wasn't despised. It was actually looked highly upon. And so Jesus, as he enters Jerusalem, he's declaring he is the long-awaited king, and he's coming in peace to his capital city of Jerusalem. And the people around see this, recognize it, and then declare, Hosanna. Literally means, Lord, save us. Hosanna. In the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's this welcoming psalm. It's from Psalm 118, this welcoming psalm of the Messiah, the the long-awaited Savior, to come and take his reign. And then five days later, they yell, 
Not Hosanna, but help me out. Crucify him. How in the world did we get there? Do you ever wonder that? Just me? I was just like, how did we land there? And, and to understand how they landed here, we actually got to do a little bit of work. And so I'm just going to ask you, for, for, for a second, would you roll up your sleeves and, and, and put on your thinking caps, and we're going to do a little bit of historical work. I'm going to unpack a couple things, because what you need to know is in the people's cry, in their demonstration, there's some narratives behind it, there's some history behind it that is informing what they're saying, and, and the same is true for Jesus. And we can't understand this until we unpack some of the historical landscape of that day. Uh, the first narrative or the first uh, uh, history behind it is we've got to ask the question, well, why is Jesus going into Jerusalem? You know, why is he showing up into town? And if you read the Gospels, all four of them, what you'll find is Jesus, Jesus tends to show up to Jerusalem around major feasts. And there's three core feasts that were called pilgrimage feasts, where people from the surrounding areas and anyone who could make it would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. The one here was the Feast of Passover. Now, Passover is a time, a seven-day celebration, remembering when God used Moses to free the Jewish people from slavery out of Egypt. Happened about 1,300 years before Christ showed up on the scene, and ever since then, annually, in the spring, they've celebrated the Feast of Passover. And the story, if you don't know, you can go back and read it in Exodus. is fascinating. Is the people of Israel were in bondage and slavery, forced slavery for 400 years. In that time, cried out to God. God answered, rose up a deliverer named Moses. Moses, you know, he, we can't go into the full story, read it all, but he, he eventually said, hey, let my people go, if you ever saw that. Okay. And... and and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And they go back and forth for a while. And there's 10 plagues that God sent. The final plague was one where he said, okay, guys, if you don't get it, if you don't let my people go, unfortunately, I'm going to send the angel of death. And he's going to go over the land. And anyone whose door isn't marked with the blood of a fresh lamb, the firstborn will die. And so the people, Moses told the people that said, Get ready. God's going to deliver us. You need to have all your stuff packed, ready to leave, and have one final meal. Eat that poor little lamb um, and get ready to leave. But make sure that you put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And that night, the angel of death passed over, that's why it's called Passover, every house that had the mark of the lamb on its doors but every house that did not, the firstborn son died. And in that moment, it's like the mercy rule. And Pharaoh said, fine, I give. Get out of here. We don't want you here. And in that, the Israelites were freed from Egypt. And every year, every year, they celebrate the fact that God, that the angel passed over them. 
And yet, and so at this time, when they're in bondage, and they're in a, the ruling government Rome has oppressed them, there is this kind of political sense always at Passover time, and this expectation that, that another Moses might rise up and, and that we might be freed once again. And so there's just this political stirring of once more God restoring Jerusalem as the primary capital city and Israel as the nation of God. And yet there's another theme that's going on as well. Because what they sang in uh, and Psalm 118 speaks to something else that was readily on the minds of the people. It's not just the feast of Passover 1,300 years ago, but there was another revolt and another group that led Israel to freedom. It was the Maccabees, and I'm going to read a little bit here for you, and I'm going to pull up, and you can kind of put up the next one. And got, As I hit, Brian, the numbers, you can go to the next, um, the next slide. We didn't talk about that before. But this is what's readily on the mind of the people, is the Maccabean Revolt. It's something you may or may not have heard about. In 167 BC, there had arisen an extraordinary king. Uh, William Barclay, a noted uh, um, scholar, writes, uh, in Syria called Antiochus. He had received in his duty to be a missionary of Hellenism and introduce Greek way of life. Greek thought and Greek religion wherever he could, even if necessary, by force. He tried to do so in Palestine, that is the, in the area where Israel is. For a time he conquered Palestine. To possess a copy of the law or to be circumcised a, a child were crimes punishable by death. He desecrated the temple courts. He a- actually instituted the worship of Zeus where Yahweh had been worshipped. With deliberate insult, he offered pig's flesh on the great altar of the burnt offering. He made the chambers round the temple courts into brothels. He did everything he could to wipe out the Jewish faith. It was then that Judas Maccabeus uh, arose, and after an amazing career of conquest in 163 B.C., he drove Antiochus out and repurified, reconsecrated the temple, an event which the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Hanukkah still commemorates. And in all probability, Psalm 118 was written to commemorate that great day of purification and the, and the battle which Judas Maccabeus won. Now, when Judas Maccabeus entered Jerusalem and cleansed and rebuilt the temple, notice this, the people waved ivy and palm branches as they sang hymns of praise and welcomed their new king in. This is the scene. This is the history. And the people are welcoming their king and waving palm branches. And readily in their minds is the Passover. Israel's history of God delivering them from Egypt. And then the Maccabean revolt and where God used Judas Maccabeus to restore Israel. And in fact, for a hundred years, they, they were... They were free and they started a new royal dynasty. Now, back to the question. How is it? How is it that Jesus announced his kingdom and the people received him as king and yet in five days' time they'll crucify him as a criminal? And I'd like to suggest back 
back to our watershed moment, that it wasn't this big, like we have these massive differences and we're on opposite ends of the spectrum. In fact, I'd, I'd like to suggest that it was a subtle adjustment of expectation that led them to vastly different destinations or ends. And I think it's true for us in life as well. And you'll see it especially if you compare uh, the, uh, the song that they sang, the Hosanna hymn that they sang, and, and the Hosanna hymn that's in Psalm 118. I, I just want to compare it real quickly for you. Mark writes, Hosanna, in Psalm 118.25, the same word here in the Hebrew, they translated it for us, Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. And we see, okay, we got uniformity here. We got unanimity here. This is good. And then, then the next line says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and the psalmist writes it this way, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow, that's exactly the same. That's pretty good. Fantastic. Uh-oh, problem. Next line. Now, notice this. Blessed the people cried to Jesus, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. David, if you don't know, this is a big old history lesson this morning, was the greatest king Israel ever had, gave the greatest territory Israel ever had, and the greatest peace. See, the people are thinking political conquest and supporting their religion. Psalm 18 says, from the house of the Lord we bless you. It's just a subtle change. It's just a little different. It's not, it's not really that big of a deal, right? I mean, one is like, it's still, still about Israel, but it's shifted. The focus shifted. It shifted from, from God to a man. It, it shifted from a relationship to the religion. It shifted, and this is the big one, in the people's mind as they're singing and agreeing in their hearts and the expectation was of conquest in Jesus' mind and heart, the focus was the cross. See, when Judas Maccabeus came into the temple, he cleansed the temple of, of the desecration, repurified it, reconsecrated, made it in this incredible place. Now, now Jesus wants to make it utterly clear his purpose as the coming Messiah. And so the next day, what he does is he shows up into the temple. And the people's expectation as they just welcomed him as king is simply this, that he will expel every Gentile, everyone who's not Jewish, and he will kick out the ruling forces and begin his conquering mission. And he shows up, by the way, he shows up to the temple, and there's multiple courts in it. And the, uh, the outer court is the area of the, it's called the court of the Gentiles. It's the largest area in the temple grounds. And during the Passover feast, uh, it would be slammed because over a million people would converge on this city. And in the temple courts, uh, they actually had special money that only you could use at the temple. And so you had to change your money at the temple and they would extort people. Uh, and so the exchange rate would be high. But then they would have special animals that you had to buy from the temple courts. Kind of sounds like going to Disneyland, right? You know, it's like they're going to, or going to the movies or being in the airport. It's like, you know, they know they have you stuck there so they can charge you more. 
And that's what they did. And so all these money changers and all these sellers who are profiting on the people are there. And it's this chaotic scene. And Jesus shows up into this moment and he doesn't expel Gentiles. What he does is he begins to flip the money changers over and begins to push out the people who are cheating the people. And he says this, and this is so profound, and this is what led him to the cross. Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, they expected Jesus to come and cleanse the temple. Instead, he cleansed it from religious hypocrisy and declared it a place for all humanity to come. See, they were saying the same thing, but they meant very different things, didn't they? See, the lesson of the watershed, and this is where it's so important, and how two people can seemingly say the same thing and yet end up so far apart is simply this. A subtle difference at the source leads to a vast divide in the end. Subtle difference, a subtle change at the source will ultimately lead to a vast divide at the end. There is a massive difference, my friends, between a religion and a relationship, and it is subtle at the source. It looks similar at the source. What you know what's different? Oftentimes, motivation why you do what you do. Do you do it out of love or do you do it because it's duty? There's a massive difference when I love my wife just to love my wife or when I love her to get something from her. See, a subtle difference at the source will ultimately lead to such a vast divide in the end. One of the most important things we can do in our relationships with others in the most significant areas, one of the most important things we can do in our relationship with God is evaluate the source. Source like, okay, what do I believe? By the way, Your behavior always reveals what you truly believe. Not what do I believe by what I really think, you know. I I intellectually assert this, but my life lives this. That's what you really believe. A, A source area. A source area is your values. What do you value? What do you hold dear? What are your convictions? That, those are the things, here's the funny part, and let me just get like in, a, in a, like a relational area real quick. What's amazing in relationships is we somehow gloss over source areas like values and beliefs and convictions because we're in love. And then wonder why later on there's this vast divide. Because there's a watershed moment there. And what appeared to be similar really went to far different destinations. 
Let me, let me apply it real quick. Or maybe not real quick. That's not a good way to say it. Let me apply it. your relationship with Jesus. I find it so interesting. The people expected Jesus to come as a Moses. And yet, and yet instead he came as the Passover lamb. As a Moses to free the people and he came as the Passover lamb to save the people. They expect him to come as a Judas who would overthrow the ruling empire He'd restore and reestablish Israel. Instead, he cleansed the temple of religion and hypocrisy. And he flung open the doors so wide for humanity to have a relationship with God. And what happened in this moment is so subtle that we often miss it in our own lives. What happened in this moment is the people took their agenda and their desires and adjusted Jesus to their agenda and their desires instead of coming and adjusting their desires and their desires uh, agenda to Jesus. Could it be could it be that we have done or are doing the same thing? Where, where instead of coming to Jesus and saying, whatever you say, I'll do whatever you show me, I'm in your way. You're the way, the truth, and the life, so I got no other way to go. I'm following you. Could it be that we instead have, have subtly allowed this source to come in of like, no, 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 my agenda and my desires and the way I want to live my life, and I'm going to adjust Jesus to fit me instead of me adjusting my life to fit Jesus. That, that you had some amens. I thought that was a good one, by the way. I just, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry. I just, just got to be honest. Let, let me give you some of these core things that Jesus said and maybe where we've adjusted, where we have this subtle difference. Jesus said, love your neighbor. Maybe the subtle difference for us is, is we somehow say, you know, that's not a 24-7 command. Love your neighbor as yourself. That, that's a one time a year, you know, we serve there, or I went on that trip, or I gave money to this. But, but my literal physical neighbors, or the people in the cubicle next to me, or, or, or the person that God brings along my path, I'm okay with not loving them right now because I've done my deed. I've checked it off the list. Could we have subtly changed it at the source? What about love your enemy? Ooh, ooh. We don't like that one in America because we're justice, freedom in the American way. Loving your enemy is not very just. See, see we'll love enemies as long as they're not the type of enemy that will pers that personally hurt us. See, because if, you, if someone really hurt you, then you're justified, and you don't actually have to love them, and you don't have to pray for those who persecute you because they persecuted you. 
Jesus wouldn't want that, would he? No, come on. He wants you to love your enemies of people you don't know and people you've never talked to, the, the easy enemies to love. I don't think there is one, but could we have subtly adjusted it? See, this is foundation to following Jesus. This is 101. He said, love God with all your heart, strength, soul, mind. Could we have subtly adjusted it to this? Love God when I have time. When I have energy. On Sundays. Take up your cross and follow me. As long as I don't have to be uncomfortable, I'll do that one. But the minute taking up my cross is uncomfortable, the minute taking up my cross makes me feel like um, an outcast, the minute it's going to cost me something, I don't think that's what it means anymore. And we just subtly adjust it and invite Jesus to fit our lives and our thinking and our desires and our agenda. And by the way, that's the same thing the people who called him king and crucified him five days later later did go and make disciples subtle difference at the source leads to this vast divide in the end and that is how two people who start out with seemingly everything in common find in the end they have nothing in common and here's, here's the great warning of Palm Sunday, and everyone's like, oh, it's supposed to be fun, and now Ingram's heavy, and he hasn't been around for two weeks, and I actually like that now. But there is this warning, friends. There's this warning, and then there's this call for us. The warning is for us not to be ones who praise him with our lips and deny him with our lives. And the call is this. I will adjust my life, will adjust my values, will adjust my time, will adjust my finances, will adjust my family to Jesus. Not any other way. That is the invitation to follow him. And there isn't one foot in and one foot out. And the invitation for you and me this morning is what will you do with Jesus as he enters? And he is declared king and he is reigning king on the universe and will you invite him to be the king in you? Let's pray. Hmm. Jesus, thanks for this morning. Thanks for this time. Thank you 
that no great divide can ever separate us from you, that your love covers every expanse. And so I pray for each person in this room that they would run to your love and surrender to your love and they would give fully themselves. I could imagine what you would want to do with a church who would live this out. God, would you make us that type of church? In Jesus' name.